On this episode of AvTalk, we look at some COVID-19-related aviation innovation. Seth Miller joins us once again, this time to explain how U.S. airlines are navigating the CARES Act. And we talk with Karen Singh from the Lufthansa Group to learn more about managing hundreds of repatriation flights. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz and hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. How are you doing, sir? Uh, the same as last week, the same as the week before that, and the week before that, and the week before that, and so on, I think. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I'm yeah, glad you covered that. Good show. Once on Sunday, it was, it was great. That I I also I left my house on yesterday Monday I left my house on Monday and and that was it was okay it was yeah it's okay there's, there's some stuff going on outside actually I just remembered yesterday I saw a uh, a KC10 right out my window which was pretty cool no not a KC10 what's the uh, MD the uh, MD11 variant of that thing the tanker they made an MD11 variant of the tanker. No, DC-10. The, the, the DC, yeah, the KC-10. Oh, okay. I was right. The KC-10, one of them, I think, out of McGuire Air Force Base down in New Jersey, they decided to, you know, just have some fun over in New York at 3,000 feet. They did a bunch of approaches to LaGuardia, and it uh, finally, by the time I caught on, I saw it go right outside my window over my building at about, I don't know, probably 2,000 feet, which is pretty cool. So I had that going for me. There's been a, a lot of taking advantage of the lack of traffic in New York airspace. And there's been a few people now who have done the whole land or, or oh, at least do a little approach yeah. at, at LaGuardia, JFK, and, and Newark. We're working on getting one of those intrepid pilots on the show, hopefully for a future episode. But, yes. Uh, but there's some, been some uh, stuff happening there. A bunch of people, or a couple of people, doing the, these runs that should be impossible in New York airspace, since it's always so busy that they're able to pretty much easily do at this point. And yesterday, like I said, we had a KC-10 doing approaches at LaGuardia. Today, we had a, a Navy P-8, which is the militarized 737 variant, doing some rather interesting approaches to LaGuardia in the middle of a thunderstorm, actually, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, so there's some things happening. Even though, yeah, I, it's nice when I can see them out my window too. I don't have to go anywhere and I can see an airplane. That's always a good thing. So, so yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we are roughly exactly where we were two weeks ago when we last spoke. Not much has changed in the way of, of flight numbers. We've been steady, roughly between. 50 and 70,000 total flights a day, 25 and 35,000 commercial flights a day. Things seem to have, have leveled out. And we are where we are in that respect. Yes, that's how much I have to add to that. <laughs> so we talked last episode to the fine folks at, at Marine Traffic, and Yorgos Hatsimanolis told us about some of the things that were happening because of the price of oil falling and, and what was happening with, you know, looking forward to, to some global tankerage storage solutions because there was, you know, a glut of oil coming to the market. And then yesterday, the U.S. oil price went negative for the first time. 
So Which, that's right. If you had uh, listened to this podcast two weeks ago, you could have sold all your oil futures and uh, avoided catastrophe or something. I don't really know how that works. So for those, and we certainly do have listeners who are much more knowledgeable about this than than either of us are, but generally, the expiration date for the futures contract uh, was was upcoming, and so all of the traders needed to get rid of their contracts because if they held the contracts on expiration, they had to take physical delivery of the oil. So it got to the point where where the price was a negative price, meaning that traders were paying other people to take the oil for them. I'm just going to go watch trading places again and try to understand it all. Similar, yes, indeed, and and a great movie at that. So I'm never going to try and talk someone out of watching Trading Places. But that happened, not global oil, just US oil. So they're still tankering and the folks at Marine Traffic are still getting ready to track just floating storage tanks, which you know seems crazy to me, but it's happened before in, in that respect. But just a nice little, we had some information in a previous episode that was useful which is always a nice thing to do. That almost never happens. That that might be a podcast first. So where we're at now, as far as the changing nature of things, is a lot of U.S. airlines are navigating how the CARES Act affects them, which is the, the... you know, kind of bailout or stimulus money, what have you, that the government has allocated to various industries, including the airline industry. U.S. airlines are navigating that. European airlines, Asian airlines are navigating those respective either group or or national funding schema. And airlines around the world are either nearing bankruptcy, declaring bankruptcy, are having extraordinary administrators say that they're going to declare bankruptcy. So we're going to walk through a, a little bit of that in just a few moments. We'll, we'll have Seth Miller join us once again, who, who's been on the show before, and he'll walk us through the CARES Act, how that's affecting various carriers from the, the large legacy carriers like American and Delta and United to the smaller ultra low-cost carriers like uh, Allegiant and Spirit, and how that's affecting each of those differently. And then we'll walk through some of the other uh, financial impacts to the, to the industry. And then later in the show, after dispatching with some some regular news, like we always do, we'll sit down with Karen Singh from Lufthansa Group to talk about how they put together a, a very large, over 400 flights repatriation scheme. To countries around the world. So a busy show and let's get into what's happening to airlines around the world, starting with what airlines are kind of facing bankruptcy or similar. Um, there's the perennial favorite that I think we should all start with, South African Airways. Uh, South African. Uh, I've been recommending that people don't book South African for a couple of years now and facing the fact that they might not exist by the time the said passenger would actually look to fly that airline. Um, but it's looking like the the end is actually possibly, possibly coming for South African Airways after so many years of huge losses and just mismanagement from the top down, unfortunately, has plagued South African for, for years now. But that's the coronavirus uh, has really compounded all of that, and it's looking like South African 
may not even be reorganized, might be completely liquidated, I believe. Yeah, I, I mean, the the news that came out, I think it was over the weekend, was a filing or, or a note to the government from the organizer or administrator of South African Airways, basically saying we, we would have to fire 4,000 people and sell the planes to pay their severance. Yeah, it's not great, especially since they've been trying to renew their fleet sort of the last couple of years. They they have a, a fleet of very old A340-300s, A340-600s, a couple of somewhat newer A330s, but they've also leased a couple of A350s to try to um, retire some of those four-engine aircraft. Those are those have only been serviced a couple of months, I believe. Yeah, but I mean, it, yeah, we, we talked about it not long ago. Yeah, not a great time for South African aviation. That's going to leave a big hole in uh, their domestic operations, which I'm guessing will be absorbed by Comair and some of the other LCCs out that way. But international route, that was pretty much the only link nonstop to North America, except for the season. I guess you have the Delta flight to Atlanta from Joburg and the seasonal service from uh, Cape Town up to Newark. But who knows if that's ever coming back at this point. Yeah, it's it's all up in the air at this point as what routes ever come back or might come back or or whether airlines come back. So hopefully that you know th- this was a, a worst case scenario and and what could happen. Hopefully the, the government and the administrators will work together to figure something out and and South African sticks around. Yeah, this is definitely it's looking unlikely at this point. It's definitely an instance of coronavirus issues compounding and accelerating, I think, what was inevitable. Right. Yeah. Th- this isn't out of nowhere. This isn't like if, if Southwest walked away from the airline business tomorrow. No, um, it's very is, unfortunate. Yeah, a it's, long uh, road. Very unfortunate that a lot of people, thousands of people will lose their jobs and a, a country will lose such a historic airline like SAA. But someone will fill the void, I'm sure. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Into bankruptcy, kind of, is Norwegian uh, in the sense that some of their Scandinavian subsidiaries have, in fact, filed for bankruptcy, but the airline itself has not. John Ostra had an interesting piece about how Norwegian is organized, and it's roughly a plug-and-play airline with uh, with various entities providing services to the airline so that it can operate. And so those subsidiary services have declared bankruptcy, but the airline itself has not. And I think, as he said, it's a a feature, not a bug that it's happening like this. Right, right. So I'm not the financial engineering mastermind here, but it, it seems like Norwegian is still on its last legs and has been for, I mean, how long? I mean, we, we went through a pretty series. Much, I mean, pretty much since day one that it since started one, yeah. long-haul operations. I mean, we, we've gone through episode after episode after episode of, of Norwegian hanging in there. So we'll, we'll see how things go there. Yeah, this is a slightly different situation than South African. South African had horrible mismanagement from the top down um, and never really had the right management to get it in shape. But it always seemed like Norwegian was 
impacted from external influences that had a good plan, a good idea, but between the 787 delivery delays and the Rolls-Royce engine delays and then the 73 MAX delays and then the grounding and, and coronavirus, Norwegian just seemed like it was doomed to never be successful once they launched long-haul operations. Yeah, yeah. It... That list just kind of kept going. I, I was riffing that, but that really is what happened. No, it it, it really... And granted, some of it has been their own missteps. Well, yeah, scheduling a, a seven eight to operate like three flights in a day with zero hours of downtime is a recipe for failure. But I mean, theoretically, it should have worked. Yeah, exactly. Theoretically, um, but like you said, I mean, the the hits just keep on coming for Norwegian. So hopefully, they can they can come out the other side. And then there's Virgin Australia, which is says that without government support, it will no longer be an airline. That's kind of teetering there. And I guess we'll see next episode whether or not we're talking about a former Virgin Australia or a current Virgin Australia. Yeah, this one is is much different. As far as I know, Virgin Australia wasn't in any financial difficulty. It was a relatively smaller airline compared to Qantas, but it was still quite successful, profitable, but without any sort of government help like Qantas received and many other airlines around the world, um, they just can't make ends meet. And now they are in, uh, is it receivership or what is it called there? I believe it is receivership. Yeah, it's uh, not great. That's where we are there with a a kind of an around the world look at, at what's happening with airlines. Let's take a quick break. And then we will come back with Seth Miller to talk about the U.S. specifically and how airlines are managing and dealing with the CARES Act, which provides uh, for funding for, for U.S. airlines. So stay with us. We will be right back with Seth Miller. Welcome back. We are now joined once again by Seth Miller, aviation journalist extraordinaire, who we always bring on to explain very complicated things very clearly, and he is extremely good at that. So nothing perhaps more complicated right now than airlines trying to figure out how the the CARES Act, which is the, I don't know what exactly we want to call it, stimulus or, or bailout money that the U.S. government has, the package the U.S. government has put together and how that applies to them. There's been a lot of exemptions applied for, some granted, most not so far. And so Seth is here to to hopefully walk us through what is going on and how uh, how we can make sense of that. So Seth Miller, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks. It's great to be back. Um, you oh, you no, built me up as being able to explain all this stuff perfectly, and I'm now worried I'll fail, but you know, uh, it's not going to stop mean, me from per- trying. Not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. We, yeah. we are certainly in very imperfect times, but let's see what we can do to try and understand what is going on. So sure. I guess let's start with what does the CARES Act mean for airlines and, and then what are they kind of applying for as part of this act? Sure. So the airlines and aviation industry in general got a very specific call out in this $2 trillion 
stimulus bailout funds bill that passed Congress weeks ago now. And in there, it's roughly $25 billion in grants, theoretically, available to airlines, commercial airlines. There's some additional money for cargo and some additional money for contractors related to the airlines. But this $25 billion comes with a few strings attached. There's some crazy stuff about how the money is actually allocated. It has to be used for paying bills. Uh, it's not pay- bills, obviously paying bills, but paying payroll bills. So the airlines each submitted effectively a copy of their payroll report from April to September 2019, because it covers April to September of 2020. And they're working against that number. That's what the Treasury Department is presumably helping fund. And then from there, the Treasury Department actually decided they're going to make it a 70-30 split between outright grants and a loan, which everybody thought it was just going to be a grant for the whole thing. And then on top of that, there's actually warrants, which are a version of a stock option kind of thing, whereby the government is allowed to buy shares in the companies at the closing price from last Thursday, I guess, uh, when this deal was finalized, or two Thursdays ago. I don't know how long ago it's been now, or where we are, or what we're doing. No, no one has any idea what day it is on or, day. or what week. On, it's, on day it's totally when fine. it was agreed to. Uh, <laughs> Right. But so what started out as, you know, fully funding payroll for the year ends up becoming somewhere closer to like 50, 60 percent of payroll funding for the year. So still a lot of money, still very useful to the airlines. There's an extra set of complications around the fact that the Treasury or the Senate basically charged the Department of Transportation with ensuring that service remains. And they left it spectacularly vague in the bill and left it up to the Department of Transportation to decide what that means. And what the Department of Transportation appears to have chosen, they they came up with a formula, and the formula is bad, and they came up with a revised formula, which was slightly better, um, but still isn't great. And basically what they did is they took a screen, a sort of snapshot of what the schedules operating were for February and for August, basically peak Uh, The August is a peak summer season. February is a weird winter season, but it was sort of like right before the whole market collapsed. So that's why it mattered. And told the airlines, pick whichever half you want. You can do a summer season or a winter season. And you have to maintain service to every destination. So it seems pretty simple, right? You just fly to each airport. It gets more complicated. (laughs) Well, there was some confusion even about that part initially. It's maintain service to every destination, not maintain service on every route to that destination. That was an And it's not even to every airport. So one of the things that the Department of Transportation did is defined metro areas. And, you know, you would think in if you're searching for a flight and you type NYC into the search box and it returns JFK, Newark and LaGuardia. In the world of the Department of Transportation, NYC also includes Islip and Stewart up in whatever upstate New York. Not quite upstate. I don't know. We, are we, have we figured up, out where? Let's go with upstate. Okay. 60 miles north of Manhattan. SWF. So those are both included, but never will show up in search results for anybody looking. So there's some weird challenges around that. Uh, Boston, if you search for, would technically include Manchester, New Hampshire, and uh, Providence, Rhode Island, but not Worcester and not... Portsmouth, New Hampshire, both of which are closer than either of the other two. So there's some really weird stuff going on in how they're all defined. But 
is what it is. So the DOT put that together. So you don't have to serve every airport, just every city or market. Beyond that, as Jason mentioned, it's not every route. So if you're an airline that flies from, say, your Delta and you fly to Boston from all of your hubs and then some, a single flight from Boston to Atlanta would qualify. And it could be just one frequency. Well, the frequency part is where it gets super interesting. And that's actually a big part of what the exceptions are that the airlines are applying for. So it's not every airport and it's not every route. But on the frequency thing, this is where math comes into play and it gets super complicated. So what the DOT did is they went and produced, they did a query against the OAG schedules and pulled a list of the weekly frequencies for each airline at each airport. And then they split the airlines into the four big ones, Delta, American, United, and Southwest. And they have a separate set of rules compared to everybody else who's considered small. If you had four flights a week or fewer to any particular airport, you are obligated to service that airport once a week under the new rules. If you have more than five five or more, you are obligated to serve it three times a week. And then if you are one of the four big airlines and you service an airport previously scheduled 25 times or more, you are required to maintain five flights going forward per week. As you can tell, there's, this, this is one of those things that works much better with charts and graphs versus talking it out. But the gist of it is the airlines have to fly theoretically not that much, right? Oh, I used to fly 25 times a week. Now I only have to fly five. I can cut my schedule dramatically. That sounds good, doesn't it? Until you, you know, do the numbers and see that there's actually nobody on those five flights. Well, so there's two different problems here. One is the numbers required by at the absolute minimums by uh, the CARES Act would actually probably result in relatively full flights because they cut so much. The airlines have not cut anywhere close to what the CARES Act would allow them to cut. You know, I think... It's been updated since, but when this first came out, American filed its updated schedule to only have 11 flights between LA and DFW. And instead of like the one that would cover LAX for the entire operation, there's, and in some ways I get it. Like you can't, you sort of have to keep the network existing. Otherwise you end up with people with forced overnights all the time. And that's not healthy and not safe for hotel workers and transportation workers and everybody else. And if it takes you three days to get where you're going with the connections, that's not good. At the same time, 10 plus frequencies seems like a bad plan on any route right now. So got to find the, the happy medium somewhere. Yeah. So for the big airlines, the ability to cut pretty straightforward, cut all these flights done fine. And they're cutting to certain extents, right? United is at 90% cuts or so and expects to extend that into June after May. Uh, Delta is similar. I think they're in the 80 to 90 range. Ditto for American. JetBlue cut a lot. It's a little different. And they have to actually restore a bunch of flights, which we'll talk about in a second with the exceptions. So there's some challenges there. One of the other interesting things, though, is this idea of the smaller airlines don't have as much to give, and especially the LCCs so and the ultra-low cost carriers. So you take an Allegiant. Allegiant is probably going to have to increase its flights to meet the requirements. Now, that is a little backwards. And moreover, and that's a little quirky. They don't actually have to increase over what was originally scheduled, but they definitely have to increase over where they were scheduled at one point. 
in the recent weeks. A couple airlines do. South uh, Spirit will as well. JetBlue will have to increase a little as well. But there's also like the idea of the seasonal routes in the cities. Their argument is that they shouldn't have to serve all of them because they're partly seasonal. So the DOT is using the IATA seasonal schedules, which is end of March to end of October. Last Saturday of each is typically when it switches. And basically the DOT is saying, okay, well, if you have a summer seasonal route, you have to operate it all summer. And the airliners are saying, well, but we typically only operate it for two or three months. Are you sure? And the DOT's advice and rulings on these has actually been a little inconsistent. There's the JetBlue appeal, for example. JetBlue chose its winter schedule because it had fewer destinations and then put in an exemption request saying, also, Palm Springs is a winter-only route, but this is during the summer and we shouldn't surf Palm Springs during the summer because no one's going to go there. It's very hot. It's a desert. We don't want to fly there from New York and Boston. The DOT's response was, yeah, but you chose the winter schedule. That's your fault. Fly to, Long, fly to Palm Springs. Counterpoint, Delta applied and said, we normally serve Martha's Vineyard, but we only serve them from Memorial Day to Labor Day, and that hasn't happened yet, and we can't get staffing out there. And we actually, it turns out they import staff and put them up like in houses or whatever on the islands uh, to run those flights. So Delta, United, and uh, Tradewinds all said, we're not starting our service to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket early. And right now, those appeals have been granted. What's the difference? Hard for me to say, other than it's supposed to be summer service and they will eventually, in theory, be required to serve it when that happens. So I'd I'd have to imagine there are a ton of these weird oddities and exceptions across all the airlines. And it's probably not even possible to go through all of them and get them actually disputed. Well, so what's really, really hard to figure out for me is what the... DOT's motivation here is. And in some cases, like the Hawaii ones, uh, with the exception of some guy, uh, Big Dave, or Dave Big Island at... Big Dave Island Oklahoma, Dave, think, yes. Yeah. Big Island Dave, like as is his per, you know, prerogative, wrote in a uh, request yeah. to reject American Airlines exemption request from Kona. He, not, he points out that, you know, American Airlines flies cargo and passengers in, and some people will need to come and go. And so we'll need to make sure that those flights continue to operate. He raises a good point that uh, losing all direct service from or nonstop service from Kona or from the Big Island to the mainland could be a problem. Counterpoint, the DOT has already approved for Alaska Airlines, Delta Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines to stop flying from the out islands to the mainland. So, oops, uh, <laughs> Dave's, Dave's request was not. Well, they haven't technically ruled on American yet, I don't think. But Dave's request did not go uh, as he had hoped. So. There's some interesting things going on there. And America, uh, the DOT's explanation there was sort of acknowledging, yes, that's a many thousands of miles flight and flying an empty plane back and forth across the ocean for five hours probably isn't a good idea. Why that one gets an exemption and JetBlue to Palm Spring doesn't, I cannot figure out. It's still flying an empty plane a couple thousand miles. There's still alternate ways to get there. Palm Springs arguably more easily than Kona because you have multiple connection points in theory, plus drive options if you get close. So the rulings have been pretty inconsistent, in my opinion, and certainly within the letter of the law, but not the spirit of what the goals of keeping communities connected and keeping the airlines you know, financially viable 
Yeah, I mean, if the goal of this is to keep the airlines financially viable, it doesn't seem to make very much sense to me to force them to fly what the Department of Transportation, looking at their own statistics, would have to know are going to be empty flights. Yeah, and you know, good news, bad news, DOT data is always lagging, but you could use DHS data from the TSA, right, that says, no, nope, no one's actually coming through our checkpoints. All of those things. We all know no one is selling seats. The airlines have published, redacted, but they've published their load factors for these flights and these routes. And they've said our load factors are between 5 and 18%, I think was the range that Allegiant gave in its filing. So no one wants to be on these planes. Even better, if you look at the Allegiant filing, one that I read of the supporting letters is from Grand Forks Airport. Grand Forks doesn't get a lot of service, you can imagine. But Allegiant flies from Grand Forks to Las Vegas in the summer. Grand Forks Airport has asked Allegiant or asked the DOT to allow Allegiant to not fly, like gone out of their way to say, no, there's no, no one's going to go to Las Vegas because the casinos are all closed. The, the shows are all closed. Everything is closed. We have no traffic. We don't want them flying he, between the two cities because we know that's stupid. The DOT technically hasn't ruled on that one yet, but based on what it has written, what it had ruled for Spirit and JetBlue, it's hard for me to see the DOT accepting, but this is stupid as a valid exemption reason. I make that argument all the time, and it usually works. But, but you're also usually talking to the mirror. So. That's true, too. But oh, how long is this new CARES Act schedule going to apply for? Since I, I think the, the funding runs through September, does the schedule have to match through September? Do, do airlines have to ramp up at that point? Do we know what happens? You no, know, it's so yes, it's through September 30th. And ironically, at that point, the airlines could scale back because the feds are no longer paying salaries. Interesting. And I think we all know what unfortunately is going to happen the day the mom- the day the money stops flowing and the CARES Act no longer applies, but we'll cross that uh, bridge when we get to it. Yeah. And I think, yes, we all do know that there will there will be cuts. They've said it. They've said as much. Now, is that to me, there's two questions raised there. One, is that a, I don't, I don't want to call it a ploy, but a maneuver to say, look, there's going to have to be a second round if, yes. if we want to keep, I mean, that seems the, the obvious thing there to me, you know, as far as the airline signaling to, to Congress and, and to the executive branch that there's going to, we need something beyond this because things aren't going to recover to a point where, where we're making it on our own without assistance. But the other thing that I'm struggling with here is why is the DOT so inconsistent when it comes to, we'll call them legacy carriers or, or the big carrier, whatever you want to call them versus low cost carriers? Because it, I'm trying to find the common thread here because I mean, you know, everything we've talked about so far is it's inconsistent. I mean, it, it's basically hurting the low cost carriers seemingly for no reason. And just very much disproportionate. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and Allegiant, the, yeah. Allegiant would be required to fly more than Alaska Airlines under the rules. Just think about that for a second. That doesn't make any sense. And I believe Allegiant was pretty loud about that when announced. Yeah. So and Allegiant has appealed and requested exemptions and put in additional data. I, I worry for them, though, that they're not going to get what they asked for. Now, there are some things that the airlines are also doing to sort of play games with 
the rulings. And Ian, I know you asked a question. I'm ignoring it. I'll come back to it in a sec. We, and I don't know if you guys talked about this on a recent episode, but like Alaska Airlines has added a bunch of uh, one-stop routes instead of non-stops. So Seattle, DFW, Houston, or Seattle, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and then return. Those are things now? Yeah. Interesting. Is that actually flying already? I don't know if they've started operations or just started selling it, but it's definitely on the market. So so are we going to start to see the resurgence of the, the triangle route? So I'm actually surprised they're not doing triangles and that they're doing out and backs. But for the longer ones, it makes sense from Alaska Airlines based on a crew scheduling thing. I actually ran some numbers the other day, and I can share a tweet with you guys to look at it. If I, you know, after JetBlue got denied... It was sort of, okay, so if I'm JetBlue and I have to run these flights to Albuquerque and Palm Springs, why don't I just, and I know no one's going to be on them anyways, why don't I just fly Long Beach, Palm Springs, Albuquerque, and back on an empty plane? It'll take four hours. I can do it with one crew and be done. Instead of two separate planes from JFK to Palm Springs and JFK to Albuquerque, that's a five-ish hour flight westbound. That's long enough that even if it was only four, you got crew timeout issues on trying to do a round trip with pilots because of the regulations on workload. So either you need a third pilot on board and do some weird rest stuff, or you got to overnight them at the remote airport. Why not just, and and so they got to do it three times a week. So why not just fly, like put a couple of planes in uh, Long Beach and fly these weird triangles and do another one for, I think I had Reno and something in Montana where they do skiing. And then Portland and Sacramento were my other triangles. So again, this goes to the the fact that you the airlines don't have to maintain routes to cities. They just have to maintain service, service. to these cities. So they could get away with triangles or, or quadrangles or, or hexagons yeah. or, or Yeah. If I was from weird. If I was from I think was it Frontier or Spirit, one of them, I think Spirit, I was looking at it's like, well, they got a hub in Atlantic City and they got a hub in Detroit. They could like literally milk run across Pennsylvania, upstate New York and Ohio and do it in an eight hour block day. Yeah, let's see a JetBlue milk run. Do JFK, Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo and back. They could actually probably get away with that. Yeah. Or via Worcester. Uh, JetBlue has to serve Worcester. (laughs) Well, no, JetBlue has to serve Worcester still. That's the other one. They're like, but it's so, and so this is the weird one. They can drop Providence, Rhode Island, but they can't drop Worcester because the DOT's rules are antiquated. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. And that flight gets canceled so often on a regular basis anyway. Yeah, because let me ask this question. Were the rules designed by anyone who has ever seen, let alone worked for an airline? Have have they seen the movie Airplane? (laughs) I I would start start there. (laughs) I don't want to call out the DOT staffers as being particularly stupid or uneducated or whatever it's not even i mean these are these are very comp uh, what what strikes me is that about all of this is it it seems very very complicated like they plugged it into some sort of algorithmic generating mad lib machine and then it spit this out instead of kind of just looking at the state of play going okay Basically, all of this is is money to keep the airlines from going out of business so we don't have, you know, who knows how many thousands of flight attendants, pilots, ground crews, you know, all joining the the millions of people who are now unemployed. Yeah. 
and how do we keep things moving? I do understand that, it though that you have to have an algorithm or, or something to define minimum service levels, and so, you're never going to find a perfect across the board silver bullet. What works in New York, sure, sure. in Los Angeles, and vice versa. And I agree with that, Jason. So there's two things I'll say to that. One is Spirit proposed a counter, like actually is one of the airlines that in its uh, response to the original proposal, it's like, hey, why don't you do it this way instead? And said, take the top three airlines in each market, require them to maintain service. So we, every airport keeps its service and then reduce them out. But like only only require three airlines to be there, right? Like as it is requiring seven airlines to fly to pick any airport where there's a ton of service now, like one of which was Allegiant once a week, and then there was this other and a that and yada yada. It doesn't make sense. It's not he- it's not delivering the value proposition of ensuring connectivity for businesses, ensuring connectivity for cargo, ensuring operational access for the national airspace system. Right. So you're still going to have six airlines operating Los Angeles to Las Vegas for absolutely no reason. Correct. I, I mean, there's. In, in a country of, what, 350 million people, there's 100,000 people flying a day now? Not even, because a bunch of those are concessionaires and whatever cro- passing through the checkpoint. Right. So, so fewer than 100,000 people are actually getting on the plane. And you and like you said, you've got multiple flights between, you know, Los Angeles and Vegas. And, and how many of those people, you know, and we've got load factors at between 5 and 18 percent. And I would argue that that load factor is the 18 seems really high to me. Hey, listen, I had a flight attendant tell me he had 45 people on an A320 two days ago. Wow. Yeah. That's actually really surprising. <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. I was very surprised, but it was a hub to hub route for the airline. So, and I didn't ask him how many were revenue versus non-rev and deadheads. So what this all comes down to is we still have too many flights required. Could the DOT have come up with a better plan? Yes. What the DOT also could have done is accepted the appeals and exemption requests from all these airlines, right? Like, okay, Spirit doesn't want to fly to New York City anymore. And even with Spirit gone, you've still got United, Delta, and American, and and JetBlue all running a very tiny number of flights, but all running flights in and out of New York every day. It's still like 50 daily flights if you add them all up. It's not enough to like be comfortable and happy, but there's enough to get the people who need to move in and out. Adding spirit service into New York City helps no one, and it actively hurts. It's dangerous for the crew. It's bad for. I mean, you could. Someone will argue it's good for the ground handlers, and I sort of get that, but not enough. That doesn't offset the other risks that it creates in my mind, especially when the ground handle. In theory, the ground handling contractors can get money from this fund too. Right. So whether they're working flights or not, uh, they should be getting paid. Do the ground handlers need to maintain service? Do they need to like drive the tug around a little bit? <laughs> no. And also worth noting that the DOT did account for regional operators, you know, the SkyWests of the world, basically saying whether you fly or not, so long as your parent airline maintains its service, you're qualified. So they did think about some of these things, just not all of them. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I, I just the, the, when like reading through all of these things, and and granted, I don't follow the the financial aspect of the industry nearly as much as I would like to have time to do. Which is why we have Seth on the podcast. It was not making sense, and still doesn't make sense. But it, it's starting to be a little bit clearer into how things came about, yeah, and yeah. why. Um, the- I still don't necessarily agree with any of this, but. 
I understand it a little bit yeah. more. If I was the DOT, I would have accepted the requests for more of these exemptions. I probably would have done it on a month to month basis, like a rolling 30 days. Like if we see XYZ change, we can put you on notice that you have to resume service within 30 days. That would meet all of the requirements in my mind and actually deliver a better everything, better numbers, better financials, better not burning fuel for no good reason and burning CO2. Like the greenhouse gas implications of flying empty planes, like hate all you want about flying full planes. At least they were full. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, do you have any information on, to compare and contrast to what Europe and Asian airlines are doing now? Plenty of airlines around the world, they're getting compensation or they're getting funding from local governments. Does anyone else have any sort of um, minimum service guidelines like the, the DOT in the US is doing? I'm not really aware of any. No, most of them are actually being told, and by the way, you can't fly anywhere. But it's also somewhat different. A lot of them, like in the UK, for example, it's a furlough scheme, not a payroll scheme. And the people getting the money are ones that have been furloughed, not being kept on. In the US, the challenge there is the way that those schemes are funded. Unemployment is maintained on a state funding, not a federal funding. And it's your, your payroll, part of your payroll basically goes into the taxes off the payroll, go into funding and unemployment by your, the employer's half of it. So that's part of it. The other part of it is healthcare. If all of these flight attendants were suddenly unemployed, none of them would have healthcare. And that would be, you know, in a time of critical pandemic emergency, probably a bad thing. Yeah, not great. And so because we have tied health insurance to employment for our country, we've created a problem where the federal government or even state governments really can't step in and solve some of the unemployment issues nearly as easily because it's not just, you know, enough cash to pay your rent and buy groceries. There's the healthcare aspect too. Right. Well, when all of this is over and it's safe to fly again, I look forward to booking a JetBlue upstate New York milk run with you, Seth. Yeah. The bad news is I just, I don't think that they're going to keep the milk runs around long enough. It, it kills me because if they schedule these things, you know, I'm going to want to do it, but I've, I've like matured too much and I can't bring myself to put my, to put me or them at risk of taking those joy rides. It hurts. We're all growing up in this strange, strange time. I don't like it. Mm. <laughs> Not one bit. Seth Miller aviation journalist, milk run enthusiast, and guy who is much better at explaining all of this financial and governmental shenanigans than I. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. I think that It'll be interesting to see how the Department of Transportation, their take on the situation develops as we get into airlines operating what they've been ordered to operate. Yeah, I, I don't envy the people at the DOT for having to come up with who flies where, when, how often, and what exemptions to grant and deny, because that that's a lot of work. I mean, it is a lot of work. But by the same token, it seems that they should have a better idea of the situation at this point than it seems that they do. And maybe I'm being too hard on them. And and if you have any insight into this, 
whatsoever, either from an airline perspective, or if you're listening to this and say, hey, I work at the DOT, email us at podcast at fr24.com, please. And we would love to hear from you what the process has been like and, and if we're if we're just missing something here. Because it feels like I am missing something, or maybe we're not missing anything, and maybe it just doesn't make sense. Yep. So today, the International Air Transport Association, IATA, which is the commercial trade arm of the commercial aviation industry, came out with uh, their weekly briefing, which they're doing now, about COVID-19. And one of the kind of obvious, but it, it helps to say it out loud, parts of the briefing was where they said, if social distancing is required on aircraft, it will end cheap travel, which makes perfect sense. Um, if you can't, if you can only sell two thirds of the seats on an aircraft, that's going to limit, you know the amount of revenue you can generate, which will lead to increased ticket prices. Perfect sense to me. Makes perfect sense. But dealing with this is going to be very interesting because I was thinking about this earlier in the week, what we were going to talk about on the podcast, and we were talking about the CARES Act and things like that and how low-cost carriers are being affected. You know, The whole business model for the ultra-low-cost ultra carrier anywhere in the world goes out the window if you have to deal with social distancing. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's not just aviation, pretty much every sector in, in, in travel and well beyond travel is going to have to adapt from public transit to cruises, to ferries, to literally the bus that takes you to the plane. We've all been on those stupid buses that take you from the gate to the airplane. I don't see that being a thing if we can't even put someone in the middle seat. Yeah, I mean, anytime that you're in close proximity to another person now. I mean, that's going to have to be rethought completely. Yeah, starting right now. Yeah, exactly. And and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see how airlines like Ryanair, Wiz, Spirit, Allegiant, any number of the Asian low-cost carriers, you know, or, or just even, you know, the high-density configurations on Japanese domestic services where you have or frankly, even the high density configurations on some, you know, North American triple sevens, like oh, yeah. four hundred thirty five seats on the Air Canada triple sevens. You know, what do you do there? Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna just toss it out there that I, I think the the course correction for low cost carriers and ultra low cost carriers especially was inevitable. That this was always going to happen in some form or another. That. Travel was, in fact, or air travel specifically, in fact, was just too damn cheap. Some of these fares you see intra-Europe, where the base fare is practically nothing, and the fare is really just taxes and fees that you could hop on a Wizz Air flight for just a couple of dollars. That's just, I don't think it was ever sustainable. And coronavirus was probably the catalyst to weed that behavior out. Now, it was great in that Pretty much anyone at this point could afford to fly to wherever they needed to go or really wanted to go. It wasn't always a need to go. It was a want to go. But it just, I don't think it was going to end up being sustainable where anyone could hop on a plane for, for dollars or pounds or euros or whatever. Um, this is, I think, going to bring an inevitable, inevitable but unfortunately abrupt 
stopped that practice. That's my two cents. I unfortunately have to agree with you. Yeah, I, I just don't see in the long run how any of this was sustainable. Um, it, it just you can't exponentially grow an industry, especially what aviation was seeing, especially in Europe, where where the number of passengers per year and number of flights per year was just growing so fast. It had to hit a wall at some point. Um, I just don't think anyone expected the wall to come in form of a uh, pandemic that pretty much shut everything down overnight. No, no, certainly not. I think that was was definitely not on the bingo card. So yeah, I, I think we're seeing, I don't know if the wholesale change that we're going to see was necessarily inevitable, but certainly an adjustment was. And, and so how how do airlines manage this and manage to come back out on the other side, if they do, certainly will be a running feature of our podcast. And certainly something that both Jason and I are thinking about from a couple different perspectives. So maybe this is something that we we bring some people on so that we can investigate it a little bit further. People that are, you know, have a a bit, a bit higher order view uh, of the industry, you know, that uh, would, would be something worth, worth discussing. Yeah, I, I would have loved to uh, get the, the Wizz Air CEO and, and BA's CEO on a debate stage at the same point, debating why <laughs> ultra low cost is the future and having BA say why uh, you know traditional mainline carrier is the future. Although BA European is really kind of an ultra low cost carrier at this point, but we won't get into that argument. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. But social distancing is coming on board. Most, most, if not all airlines at this point are, are blocking middle seats. Not that that really does all that much since load right. factors are in the toilet anyway. So who cares about the middle seat? But once we start rebounding and coming out the other side of this, it will eventually start to matter. And when do you pull the Band-Aid off? When do you start releasing those middle seats for booking? I don't know. I don't think anyone has an answer to that. No, I don't even think we're to the point where we start asking that question yet. I think we're so far from that question being even asked at this point that we don't have to consider that one on this particular episode. Let us consider some things that have happened because of COVID-19 that aren't directly you know, related, but are, are kind of tangentially related, if that makes any sense. Jason, I hope you followed where I'm going with this. Yeah, um, yeah sure, sure. Okay. So one of the things that happened this week was that the first Airbus landed on St. Helena, which is the remote island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And that airport was built a few years ago with much controversy and consternation. It is a very remote island. It is subject to extreme wind shear. And there are very few options for diverting and dealing with inclement weather. There's pretty much one option, right? Is I think it's return back to the mainland. You can either return back to the mainland or, or you can, I guess, in very special circumstances, uh, divert to Ascension Island. But the first Airbus landed there this week. It was a Titan A318, the baby bus. Normal no aircraft. baby bus, though. Yeah. The, no, this is true. No ordinary baby bus. Jason, tell us the history of this particular Okay. I, I've actually flown on this airplane. It was one of the two British Airways A318s that used to operate the specialized London City 
New York JFK service via Shannon on the way back to uh, North America. BA retired that aircraft from its fleet, I think about two years ago at this point. It still retains the other one. But Titan left the aircraft configured in its BA all business class 32 seat configuration with full flat seats, which is pretty damn cool. Yeah, they they generally use it for, you know, kind of VIP group transport. Think, you know, sports teams or, uh, you know, I guess uh, this was just the aircraft that was right for mission. Things like that. Yeah, I mean, they, they needed something that could land there. They needed something that could carry the supplies that they were bringing. And the A318 worked out in that particular mission. So they, they did London, Accra, Ascension Island, St. Helena, Accra, London, if I'm getting that whole thing right. But yeah, there's some, some good video that we'll put in the show notes of the aircraft landing there. And, and you can see, uh, you can see the wind, the, the wind doing its thing. Yes. It's the uh, second largest aircraft ever to land at St. Helena. Yeah, I love. Uh, yeah, I love that the A318 is the second largest aircraft to ever land there. Yeah, the the uh, largest being the the I believe the first ever aircraft to land there was a 737-800 operated by Comair. It was, if not the first ever, then one of the first. Certainly, I, I can't remember whether they landed a smaller aircraft there to check the approach before that, but I don't know if that aircraft actually landed. So we'll have to to check that, and and we'll post some history in the show notes because it's it's a fascinating place, and, and the story is a good one. The other two things that that I thought were were worth discussing was the first of the kind of new seating configurations that are being touted. We've talked previously. I mean, our last episode we would have chatted from the Aviation Interiors Expo. Oh, sad. That was that was canceled this year. And AX is, is, I think, Jason's favorite thing to do in the entire world. Well, it's, it's in Hamburg, and I love Hamburg. But one of the other things is you always see the new seats that, that airlines or that the seat manufacturers are trying to put on airlines. And one of those is always the goofy stand-up seats, and it gets a lot of press every April because they tot them out because the company you know wants free press. That didn't happen this year, so I'm calling that a win. On the other end of things, Avio Interiors has come up the with same company, a, by the way, as the stand-up oh, seat. Company. Oh, the well, very same. This is even better. They've come up with a three-wide forward, backward, forward per row seat that has a divider to prevent you from being near your seatmates. Uh, it doesn't solve the seat row-to-row problem because you're still kind of pointed in the same direction as the people in the next row. But the idea is that you are socially distant from the people in your row, so you can still have three people in a row. Jason, I have thoughts. You have thoughts. I have thoughts. A, no, just no. B, if, if you look at the images, and I'm sure <laughs> Ian will do his, his thing where he puts the link in I the will show put notes. It in the show notes. It's not going to work just because it adds so many surfaces to clean. If you look at the pictures, you have this basically this plexiglass or this plastic shell around every passenger that goes from about halfway down your arm, maybe a little higher than the elbow, up to way above where your head would be, maybe about six inches, 12 inches above uh, the top of the seat, where it's just all this translucent or pretty much clear plastic shell. That thing is going to get disgusting from people sneezing on it and people 
resting on it from just leaning on it when they're going to going to try to get some sleep it's going to get disgusting it's going to get sneezed on it's going to get scratched up people are, are no, no it's just it's not going to work but the other thing they released the much more somehow more practical thing than what they released there was that forward backward seat that ian was talking about where if you've ever flown or seen british airways uh club world seat which is the forward backwards business class seat, which is just just bad. It's basically bringing that concept to economy. So you'll have in each row, you'll have two fo- seats facing forward and one seat facing backwards. So it gives kind of the the feeling that you have more space because this, the person next to you is, is facing the other way and you can't really see them. It doesn't actually give you any more personal space, but it, it gives you the illusion that there is additional space, which is actually pretty cool. There are other, in the past, probably for a decade now, there's been a couple prototypes and, and seats on the market that were were staggered. They weren't really forward backwards, but it was one um, from Thompson Aerospace, I believe, where the, the, seat, the seats in every row were kind of staggered or offset from each other by about maybe three to six inches. So it, it did, in fact, give passengers a bit more room but no airline is really willing to take the plunge to be the first to have a really truly weird and different economy seat. So as much as that would be cool and different and, and maybe even practical, I don't really expect to ever see that out in the wild. No, I mean, I, I appreciate the effort and innovation. However, it, I often think that you know some of these seat designers, and, and much like the folks at Department of Transportation in the United States government, have never been on an airplane. Yeah, uh, well, the the stand up seat it was is only there to generate buzz, as you say. I actually was working on a campaign to talk to the people who administer the AIX show to get that seat banned from the show, since it generates nothing but negative negative press about the industry as a whole. So it's good to see Avio Interiors pivoting to something actually innovative and might actually stand a chance instead of just you know some nonsense about standing seats. That's just right. Not- Right. going to be practical. The third thing that I had that was, you know, because of COVID-19, but but not a, a detrimental effect, I guess, Airbus is now piloting a remote delivery program for its aircraft. And Pegasus Airlines, over this past weekend, did the first run of this particular process where they can take delivery of the airline or of the aircraft without actually setting foot on either, you know, in, in Toulouse or, or Hamburg to, to pick up the aircraft. And they can delegate a bunch of stuff to Airbus who will put the aircraft through its final checks, uh, ensure that everything is up to, to the customer specifications. And then a third party can be delegated various things, even all the way to flying the aircraft to its destination. My question, and we've talked about these things before as far as leasing goes, is can we get rid of this goofy thing where you have to fly into the airspace of the leasing agent or the leasing bank's airspace to deliver an aircraft? Can we now dispense with that? Oh, you mean like when Qatar flew, what was it, like almost a dozen 787s from Victorville all the way to Doha and then all the way back to uh, Victorville again just to park them? 
and now in the age of COVID, have flown them back to Qatar. Oh, amazing. So yeah, it's really amazing what you're able to achieve in six weeks of work from home under a pandemic that just before that, it was impossible. Here in New York State, you couldn't, you had to go somewhere physically to get a marriage certificate. Now you can do it over Zoom. So we're seeing a lot of that play out where suddenly what was previously impossible for decades is now magically possible with uh, a virtual meeting on Zoom or some e-documents being signed or an intermediary to accept your aircraft. Guess what was really impossible and so impossibly difficult six weeks ago is now actually not so difficult, is it? It, it is not. Speaking of impossibly difficult, let's take a quick break, and then we will come back to chat with uh, Karen Singh, who is the risk management director for the Lufthansa Group, but in these interesting times, shall we say, has been managing the Lufthansa Group's coordinated repatriation efforts. So clearly not impossibly difficult because they did it. Uh, nearly impossibly difficult, I should say. They did uh, the impossible. Let's they did. They did the impossible. So we will uh, take a quick break and come back for uh, a, a chat with Karen Singh from the Lufthansa Group. Stay with us. We're now joined by Karen Singh, who is in normal days, the Aviation Security Risk Management Director at the Lufthansa Group, but in the circumstances we find ourselves in now, is now the coordinator for the repatriation efforts that the Lufthansa Group has begun and, and since concluded. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Your normal job is a bit, you know, risk management and things like that. How did that transition into what you're doing now as far as coordinating the, the repatriation task force? Yeah, it is actually quite easy because as uh, in my normal life, as the person in charge for aviation security risk management, naturally we have a close link to also to our government. So, and when we do, for example, our audits on all our destinations worldwide, the embassies at the, these locations naturally are a natural touch point for us. And more or less the head office of all the embassies naturally is the, uh, M the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, in Berlin. And that's why we always have a close link uh, to each other. And also when it comes to special charter flights in case of any evacuation scenarios, be it an earthquake, etc., we could also be a potential carrier for them. So we also had in the past a quite close cooperation. And when it came then to this massive repatriation program over the last four weeks, Lufthansa was a, a partner for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to support them um, achieving their goal. So the idea of operating repatriation flights isn't a foreign concept to Lufthansa. I mean, you're prepared to do this, albeit on, shall we say, a much smaller scale. And so was this really just a, you know, finding the people to increase those efforts and say, okay, instead of operating one repatriation flight because of an earthquake or something in one city, we're now going to operate, you know, hundreds of these flights? Yeah, fully correct. So that was indeed something really unique and special for us to support 
the German government with those repatriation flights over the last couple of weeks. It is naturally something totally different than to conduct only one repatriation or one special charter flight for be it a commercial customer where you have sometimes weeks and months ahead of such an operation versus as we did now more than 160 flights within only 48 to 72 hours uh, until the first departure at a certain destination where you maybe not even have a regular station set up. So you have to bring all the people together to, in the minimum time frame, align yourself, know what you need, get the uh, necessary approvals, and then bring the aircraft to that destination, ensure crew safety and crew, uh, crew duty times limitations. So at most destinations, we then also went into layover. And then after that, bring all the citizens of, of Germany and Europe uh, back home. So that was a tremendous challenge and a great team effort of, of the entire company. And some of these flights have operated to, to airports that Lufthansa has never operated before. I mean, we saw photos of, of two Lufthansa 747s in New Zealand for the first time. And I thought that was a, a fascinating thing. Can, can you go into a little bit more detail about how some of the more, some of the more challenging flights were operated and, and were there any unique challenges to those? Yeah, sure. Uh, just to mention, uh, you mentioned the two seven four four sevens in in Christchurch. We had uh, simultaneously always two three eighties in Auckland. I think the biggest presence at the same time at a destination that we, as Lufthansa normally do not operate, was Barbados, where we had eight aircraft on ground at the same time. Quite tremendous and uh, um, impressive, but especially. The New Zealand operation with in total 14 flights that we operated to New Zealand was a massive challenge, but also it was a, we had great support by our partner in New Zealand. They supported us with the, with the check-in, but check-in, it was just one small piece of the puzzle. Um, uh, if, if you speak really of airports, so offline destinations that we do not normally operate. So we have to ensure the handling, so loading, fueling, check-in, ensure that you have the appropriate traffic rights to overfly certain countries on the way to your destination, the landing permits. There we had, if necessary, we had the support also of uh, our Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In addition, you had also when it came to security critical destinations, ensure the a secure setup for the operations during parking the aircraft, sealing it, etc., guarding of an aircraft, and also ensure that before the departure of the flight, all the standards are ensured because what we naturally didn't want or what we ha had to avoid was that something security or safety critical could occur to our operation um, during um, the repatriation project. So overall, we had to ensure Lufthansa standards in all its uh, manners on the one side, 
but ensure the highest availability on aircraft and crew to ensure as fast as possible to repatriate our German citizens, but also other European citizens back home to Europe. So I, I want to switch gears for a moment because I've been very interested and we've gotten a few listener questions over the past couple of weeks about repatriation flights in general. How were the seats allocated? Was there any special, I mean, we've heard the phrase ad nauseum at this point, but social distancing on board. What were some of the precautions that, that both the cabin crew and, and the flight crew took to operate these flights? Good question. The So the... Special precautions, for example, that our operating crews took was to also protect them naturally to reduce the service to a minimum. So to reduce also the physical contact between staff and passengers on the one hand side. Um, what we offered them during all the repatriation flights were meal boxes so that every passenger had something to eat, something to drink during um, those flights. Also, because at those destinations, the supply chain of catering facilities were no longer given. You can imagine that during the entire crisis, uh, the supply chains also of those catering units, they couldn't rely on their providers. So we offered to bring in those boxes from our side. Then secondly, our staff uh, had always uh, the possibility to protect themselves by giving them masks and also disinfectional material on board. So this is uh, especially given and also naturally they followed also in their own interest, the local regulations and restrictions. Uh, for example, um, in New Zealand and also in other destinations, crew stayed in the hotel room during their layover time to minimize the possibility to be open to public and get an affection from their side. So that was the one side for the crew and what they did on board and also the passengers from their side. They, they didn't show that they felt uncomfortable during the flight. Um, they were really all happy to, to come home and they were not expecting any big service independent in which class you were seated. Coming to your question, in which class uh, were passengers seated? That was determined by, um, the, by the embassy. So the embassy decided, are you allocated in economy, premium economy, business, or even first class if there was a first class seat? That doesn't mean that there was first class service. They all got the same service. But especially maybe for elderly people, uh, the embassy then allocated different seats to different passengers. Interesting. Interesting. I, I was wondering about that because we had seen, I, I think some people had posted on social media photos of the, the service that they were receiving, but, but no one had posted for many of the other classes besides economy. So that, that's interesting that the embassy was involved in determining that. But I, I, that does make sense to me that, that they would prioritize you know, elderly passengers or passengers perhaps with reduced mobility or, or something like that for a, for a bit more a bit more comfort. As far as baggage, I mean, because you're, you're bringing, I mean, for instance, from New Zealand, obviously people have, have perhaps been there a while. They're on a long vacation. There's a lot of baggage. And, and how was that handled? Was there any limitation on, on what 
folks could bring on the aircraft or, or was it just more like a normal flight where you had, you know, your normal baggage limitation? So in general, you have the regular Lufthansa standards and baggage regulations when it comes to, to fly with us. But nevertheless, we all know that this is a special situation and will be a special situation. So naturally, we had the interest to ensure the passengers and also their baggage goes along um, with them. So we always found solution with uh, which uh, covered all the interests and i think we didn't stick to the strict standards that we normally would uh, enforce if you fly with economy only one piece of 23 kilos uh, at the end and one of the things that i wanted to ask you about was the number of flights that operated uh, through bangkok was there any special situation because of, I'm assuming it's because of Bangkok's unique location in Asia, kind of between, you know, operating into New Zealand and, and places elsewhere in Asia. Was there any special situation in Bangkok, given the number of flights that passed through that airport? No, there was, in, in fact, no special situation. Naturally, it was, we had to Oblige also with the regulations that um, were um, that were given by the Thai authorities. So, for example, we, we could have started with the first flight to New Zealand about more than twenty four hours earlier, but there came local restriction out not to park an aircraft for more than twenty hours. So, actually, our idea was in the beginning to fly a deadhead crew into Bangkok. With a uh, ferry flight, park the aircraft there for 20 hours, and after that, carry on to New Zealand. As that was not possible, we had to postpone the first flight and send the deadhead crew along our regular passenger flight to Bangkok. And the aircraft came then um, about 20 to 24 hours later to pick the crew up, and uh, the crew then operated into New Zealand. And after the first flight, we had this, let's say, special situation. Then it was a regular schedule every day, two flights to, into Bangkok eastbound and every day, two flights westbound brought us in total then to those 14 flights. Interesting. Is there anything that, that you've learned from this particular very, very special situation that you're going to take back to whatever normal operations might be whenever they may resume? I think w one of the most special situations was definitely operating into Lima, where we had uh, to park our aircraft on the non-commercial side of the airport. And based on that circumstance, there was no passenger terminal facilities available. So all our passengers have checked in in the so-called German club, 25 kilometers in the city center of Lima, and then were carried in small buses to the, uh, not terminal, to the, to the facility. There was only one security screening line. So overall, the boarding took us more than two hours because passengers only came in small groups of 30 to 40 people. 
And logistically, that was also quite interesting, not having a check-in system downtown, not having the baggage handling facilities. So that made it quite complex. And also for situations like those, we send along on most of the flights so-called additional crew members like technicians, load masters and check-in supporters because most of the quite some of the destinations they were not served by us on a regular schedule so uh, quite challenging also for the supporters that accompanied those flights thank you so much for joining us today karen singh the in normal times aviation security risk management director at the lufthansa group and in these extraordinary times the coordinator for the repatriation task force this has been a fascinating conversation and i want to thank you so much for joining us today Welcome back once again. Before we let everyone go, because at this point, it's been quite the episode, I think, but I've enjoyed all of our conversation so far. A couple things. Boeing is getting ready to send their a lot of their people back to work in the next uh, week or so. And this is happening just as Boeing's Japanese 77 supplier is closing up shop. How's that going to work? I do not know. Yeah, a lot of uh, the production relies on just-in-time delivery of components and uh, structures, especially the 787, which is probably the most outsourced thing ever produced. Uh, but if they can't get the wings from Japan or the this from there or the that from somewhere else, how the hell are they going to restart production? Which leads me to something that, Jason, this is a curveball. It's not in our show notes, but I want to talk about it because we're talking about just-in-time production. This goofy thing that Boeing did by offering the Dreamlifter. Oh, God. I am so upset about this. I, I just I just want to cover this real quick. We talked about this in, in, I think, in the previous episode. But Boeing offered the use of the, the 747 large cargo freighter, the, the Dreamlifter, that carries components of the 787 to the final assembly line, so, so to Painfield and, and to Charleston, to then be put together for final assembly. The cargo compartment, the, the main deck cargo compartment of the Dreamlifter is unpressurized. It requires special ground handling equipment that is only available at a few airports around the world. Why even bother? Yeah. So there's a good video about a pilot who actually sometimes operates the the Dreamlifter as it's actually operated by Atlas Air, I believe, these days. Right, um, yes. But yeah, it requires specialized equipment to load equipment on. It doesn't have the standard, the floor on a freighter that you might have to easily load cargo on and off. Uh, a lot of the places where the medical equipment is actually produced, the Dreamlifter can't even operate in and out of those airports because it's just simply too big of an aircraft. So really, it was an interesting offer, but a hollow one, as pretty much anyone who knew anything about the Dreamlifter knew that it just wasn't going to work and you'd get more cargo capacity on a 737. And that's exactly what Boeing finally did. They offered their 737-700 BBJ, I think, to yeah. um, haul some medical equipment. And that that's pretty much it. I think there's been... Well, we can't even track that flight, actually, because I, I, I believe they blocked that aircraft from being tracked. They're also they, they that medical equipment went to New Hampshire, but they're they're also pulling the um, 
which is what a lot of people, including myself, and I think you even suggested this, take the eco demonstrator out of the desert, which they had parked, and use that because it's a 777-200 and has plenty of cargo space. So they're finally going to do that soon. But it, yeah, the whole Dreamlifter thing was just so weird to me that, yeah. that they even bothered to, to offer that. Fortunately, Airbus had a bit more slack in their test fleet. They had the A330 A330 MRTT available at their disposable at their disposal, which was lucky for them. It was it was fortunate that they had that aircraft. Airbus or Boeing actually just doesn't have an aircraft of that type available at its disposal. And I guess the Airbus, uh, I'm sorry, the Dreamlifter was as close as it was going to get to that. Though I, I find it hard to believe that. Boeing has no other wide-body aircraft available to just toss into operation. That just doesn't strike me as reality. I can only tell you what I know, and that's what I know. Yeah. Very strange. Oh, well, it does have the 777X, but that is not uh, not suitable for missions right. that sort right. at this point. Not yet, not now. That would have been cool, though. If I'm that, sure if we were a couple months later down the road, I'm sure Boeing would not have hesitated for a second to put the 777X into emergency freight operations. That would have been spectacular. That, that would have been. But that's not where we are. And hopefully, by the time it is ready to enter service, we are no longer in the position of needing expedited freight on passenger aircraft. But who knows? Let's call it an episode there because this has been a quite full episode. I learned a lot from Seth, as I always do. And we had a great conversation with Kieran Singh at Lufthansa. And we, a lot, we started the show by saying not a lot happened, but apparently a lot happened. Yeah, stuff, stuff is going stuff on. Stuff is it's happening. Not, not, mostly not yeah. good stuff, but stuff yeah. is happening. And we'll keep plugging away. If you liked this extra long episode, or, or just any of the episodes in general, pop over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. A rating or a review are always greatly appreciated. They help other people find the podcast. As they say, tell your friends, and uh, we thank you so very much for listening. This has been episode 83 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Mr. Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening, and stay home. Stay home.